0: In 1876, the president of Western Union, William Orton, dismissed the phone as a toy when Alexander Graham Bell offered to sell him the patent for $100,000. In 1903, the president of Michigan Savings Bank warned Henry Ford's lawyer, Horace Rackham, to protect his money. The horse is here to stay, he said, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. In 1950, Associated Press writer Dorothy Rowe used what she called scientific evidence, now listen to this, to predict by the year 2000, all women would be six feet tall. The 20th century Fox kingpin, Daryl Zanuck, sniffed at the idea that the idiot boxes keeping people out of the theaters would continue. He predicted that television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Our world today, more than any other time, is filled with people who make predictions of one sort or another. As you notice, those predictions made by very influential and wealthy men were what? Extremely wrong. Our world is filled with voices predicting how our lives will be improved if we do this or that. Consider this, there are over 1 million podcasts in the United States right now. According to the USA Today news, there are 3,000 news outlets in America. According to Web Tribunal, there are over 600 million bloggers on the web, and they publish 6 million blog posts per day. The information resources make millions and millions of predictions every day. We have bloggers who say, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. We have uh, podcasters telling us, if we do this or do that, this is going to happen to your life. They predict what, whether you can expect next week, where the financial markets will be in the coming months, what careers will be the best careers in five years, and who is likely to be your president after the next election, and what you can expect gas prices to be the next holiday season. True? Predictions abound about our lives, about the future of our lives. These information uh, resources predict that your marriage, what your marriage will be like if you listen to this author or that author. They predict how your children will turn out if you raise them according to this parenting expert's prediction. They predict you will become more successful if you apply these life strategies to your life. And they predict what your life will be if you vote for this or that candidate some predictions aren't really all that life-changing if the predicted sunny day doesn't pan out it doesn't affect your life that much you might just get a little bit more wet than what you were planning on but some of the predictions can have grave effects and grave consequences as ian proved here just in the last couple of weeks a prediction that this big massive storm was going to hit the florida and so many people ignored it because ah not going to happen it's not going to be real the list of predictions is almost endless we know many of those predictions just don't pan out and others will drastically change the way you live everybody has a theory an argument a spin or a slant that they feel should be listened to with so many voices clamoring for our attention how do we choose what voices to listen to how do we choose what voices to listen to how do we sort through all the rhetoric and find the truth? I would like to suggest that there is one source of information about the future that is superior to any other source, any other slant, any other spin. One person's prophetic voice that we should value over all others, and that it would be the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we will see, his prophetic announcements have been completely true and accurate, and this true and accurate prophecies uh, can bring us great comfort in times of uncertainty because we understand that if he predicts certain things and they come true all the time then everything else he says is true and we can have great confidence in what he says the truth that he is always right in his predictions give a strong foundation upon which our hope for the future is built today we're going to look at just the first three verses of the second longest sermon that jesus christ preached his sermon is all about our future but it is the first three verses that help uh, build a foundation of confidence and hope that we'll, the rest of the sermon will rest on. And before we look at those verses, which will be in Matthew 24, and you can go ahead and start turning there, it'll be Matthew t- chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, it'll be page 1001, 1054. But before we actually get to those verses, we need to understand that Jesus Christ is a prophet. Jesus Christ is a prophet. We don't have time this morning to examine how the Bible reveals that Jesus was and is prophet, priest, and king, and so we're just going to focus on His being a prophet this morning. Prophets were men who were chosen to be God's messengers to His people. They were able to foretell this future. They were able also to perform signs and wonders. It was a very serious calling, and one where speaking for God meant that you could never be wrong in any prophetic announcement. You had to have a perfect record as a prophet in deuteronomy 18 when a prophet speaks in the name of the lord if the word does not come to pass or come true that is a word that the lord has not spoken the prophet has spoken presumptuously and you need not be afraid of him we also see in jeremiah 28 9 as for the prophet who prophesies his peace When the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. What was the standard of whether the Lord really sent the prophet or not? If what he spoke was true. In Deuteronomy, if they speak wrongly, he's not from the Lord. And you know what the the punishment that was dealt out for those who predicted something as a prophet, who said, I'm a prophet of the Lord, I speak for God, and it didn't come true? They were put to death immediately. We also see in Jeremiah that if, if it comes true, then we understand that the prophet is from the Lord. Any prophetic announcement a prophet of God made had to come to pass or that prophet was put to death. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was God in the flesh, and therefore He did what prophets do. He spoke for God Himself because He was God. He was a messenger of God. We also know that Jesus did many signs and wonders, correct? To prove who He was. We also understand that Jesus foretold future events. We also understand that those around Him claimed that He was a prophet. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 11, we see, And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They had seen his ministry. They had understood that Jesus had proven himself to be a prophet. And Jesus himself alluded to the fact in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, that he was a prophet. And Jesus said to them, speaking about himself, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. The Bible is clear and reveals that Jesus was a prophet. And we know that every future event he prophesies about will come true because he is the prophet. And that is where we come right now in Matthew 24. And we're just going to take a glance at Matthew 24 right now. I'll kind of get an overview of what's going on. Matthew 24 is known as the Olivet Discourse. It is where Jesus answers questions of four of his disciples Peter, James, John, and Andrew, while they were sitting on the Mount of Olivet, looking over the city of Jerusalem. Matthew 24 is one of the most discussed portions of Scripture because it deals with the future of Jesus Christ's church. It would take several, several sermons to look closely at it and what all the, has been said about that chapter. But this morning, I just wanted to take a quick glance at it to get the context Jesus, Jesus, as I said, is having a private conversation with four of his apostles. And in this conversation, Jesus describes the coming signs that will announce the, the end of the age. And that would be the end of the church age. These sig- signs would be a signal that the coming, of the coming rapture and at the beginning of the tribulation has started. And we see that in verses 24, 4 through 14. And then he describes in verses 24, 15 through 28... The future event of the abomination of desolation, which is when the Antichrist desecrates the Jewish temple in the tribulation. And then in verses 29 through 31, he describes the future coming of the Son of Man, which they will later understand is he's describing his own return as being the Son of Man. And we see that in verses 29 through 31. But there's something odd, not odd, but just something we need to notice about these predictions. Each of these predicted future events will not happen in the first century. They will not happen in the second century. And they will not happen in the third century or even all the way up to the 21st century. They will not happen. They have not happened as of yet. The question is, how do we know for sure that these predictions, these prophecies will take place? We know Jesus is a prophet And we know that what he predicts must come true or he would be a false prophet. How do we know? What is our basis for knowing that what he preaches in this sermon is going to come to pass? And the answer is found in the first three verses of chapter 24. Please follow along as I read them. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. And Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered him, them and said, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be not, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. These were, verses really come alive for us when we understand the setting and what is going on behind Jesus saying these things. And that's what we're going to look at now for quite a while. We're going to look at the setting. This question and answer session between Jesus and his disciples happens during the Passover week. And we have to grasp that Jesus is just hours away from being hung on the cross. This is his last Passover week. And it was a week of great disappointment for Jesus Christ. We must not miss what's going on here. This is a week of tremendous disappointment for Jesus Christ. He cleansed the temple of people who were using the temple as a place to make a profit, taking advantage of those who needed to buy sacrificial animals. He comes into the temple and he whips them and he says, this house should be a house of prayer. My father's house should be a house of prayer. And while sitting in the temple watching the people give their offerings in the offering box he made the comment that they were giving out of their abundance while drawing their attention to a woman who gave of her poverty he was pointing out to those who were sitting with him that many of his people had wrong heart attitudes when it came to their giving they were giving out of their abundance they weren't giving out of their need or for uh, for the sake of others they were only giving because i've given my portion they were giving out of their abundance Then he walks by a fig tree that hadn't borne any fruit. And he cursed it and said the tree would never bear fruit again. What point was he making? He was making the point that if you claim to be something, it should be evident in your life. The fig tree was claiming to be a fig tree. The fig tree was showing with its leaves that there should be fruit on it. But there really wasn't. He was calling out the fake religion of his people which also warns us that he hates those who claim to be his, but their lives don't show it. This applies not just to uh, the fig tree and just to the people he was talking to. They understood that the fig tree was pronouncing something. I, should ha- I have fruit. But when you came up to it, there was no fruit. And Jesus said, you're fake. You will no longer bear fruit. And so many of us know of people who sit in the church who claim to be Christ followers, who have no shoot fruit to back it up. And we understand that those people are cursed because they don't have the holy spirit within them. And then he gives a scorching rebuke of the fake religion that it, of his people and it, it goes back to this in chapter 23 and you can read chapter 23 it is a scorching rebuke. You'll be amazed at the language Jesus uses to call out those who follow his father but have hearts that are far from him. He calls, calls them liars. Take some time to read through chapter 23 this week. And it's a scathing, scathing rebuke. And this is all happening in that last week before his death when he comes into Jerusalem. Dr. Jeremiah made this comment about this passage. If I have learned anything, he says, from this particular passage of Scripture, I have learned how awful it is for Jesus to see us playing at church. How it grieves Jesus to see his people acting like something they are not. Let me read that again. If I've learned anything from this particular passage, that's chapter 23 of Matthew, I have learned how awful it is for Jesus to see us playing at church. How it grieves Jesus to see his people acting like something they're not. Ah, Jesus was just laying it out. The Jewish people had a false religion, and throughout the week, he identified that over and over. But then, even in his scathing rebuke, we see Jesus' heart at the very end of chapter 23. He goes through here, and he gives them a scathing pronouncement of their false religion, and that they were false in what they believed, they were false in how they lived and how they portrayed themselves as being God's people. But look at chapter 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent into it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. What was Jesus' heart towards these people who were rejecting him and who were going to continue to reject him? He still loved them, didn't he? He still cared for them very much. But even in that love, even that care, he points out this is a false religion and he rebukes them. Jesus still loved his people. He rebuked them, but he loved them. What a disappointing week it was for Jesus. And then Matthew records for us a poignant scene just three days before he would die to provide a way for those who rejected him to to be saved from their sins. And look at chapter 23, verses 38 and 39. This is just, when you take all of this this week into account, he says, see, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ announces this, rebukes the leaders, he rebukes the people who are in the temple. And think about what this means. Jesus Christ does this to the temple, and he says, I will walk away from you until a day when you say, you are my Lord. He abandons the temple. He abandons his Jewish people because they rejected him. Think about what it would mean for a Jew to walk away from the temple and say, I will never enter you again. Think about what it would mean to have a Jewish Messiah turn his back on the temple and walk down the steps and say, I will not be returning That's the picture of what's going on here. Jesus turns and walks out of the temple for the last time. He turns his back on those who rejected him, and he left his father's house desolate. What does that word conjure up in your mind? Desolation. It's worthless, of no value. What a heartbreaking scene. And that brings us to the first three verses of Matthew 24. And I want to read them again. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then the scene shifts. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now again, this is still part of the scene. We see Jesus Christ renouncing the temple, renouncing the false Jewish religion. We see Jesus Christ walking down the steps and leaving his house desolate. And just think about this. They're walking away from the temple, and what do his disciples do? Ah, Jesus, look at this magnificent temple. Look at the beauty of it. Look at the the way it was built. That's what they say. We see that here. Look at what they said. Jesus left the temple and he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They were saying, "Oh, look at the grandeur of what this is." You see what you see the the ironicness of this? He just turned around, he walked out, and his disciples come to him and say, "Look at the grandeur of what we've built." It is so ironic when we start seeing the scene that is set up here. Jesus had turned away from all that the temple represented as a false religion, and His disciples were making approving comments about it. And He turns to them and predicts that the temple they were so enthralled with would be destroyed. Not one stone would stand upon another. And this would have absolutely shocked the disciples. And we know that. Can you imagine them saying, look at the grandeur, and Him turning to them and saying, there is going to be a time when this temple will be destroyed, there will not be one stone still set upon another. And can you imagine the shock of the disciples? And we know they were shocked because it didn't leave their mind. And as they come to verse three, they have gone up to the Mount of Olives. They have taken that hike up there and the disciples came to him privately and saying, in verse three, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming. And And of the end of the age. They didn't understand. They didn't grasp what was going on. The disciples were struggling with what Jesus had told them about the temple being destroyed. Because to them, it was impossible for it to be destroyed. And not just because it was God's temple, but because of what it was. We need to understand what the temple was in that day and age. The temple complex, this was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. The Jewish temple here was massive. It covered approximately 36 acres. Construction had started 15 years before Jesus was born and completed around 25 A.D. The construction of the temple took 46 years to complete. Some of the stones that were used measured approximately 40 feet long, 8 feet wide, and and 3 feet deep, and they weighed around 80 tons apiece. And Jesus is saying not one stone (laughs) will be left upon another Uh, other stones were even larger than that another stone was is approximately and we can you can still see this one 41 foot long 15 feet wide 11.5 feet deep and weighed between 157 and 630 tons and jesus said not one stone will be left upon another and here they are on the mount of olives and this temple would have dominated the scene If you sit on the Mount of Olives, you can go online and look. It looks out over the whole valley of Jerusalem and where the temple was. It would have glimmered in gold and white limestone. And Jesus said, it's all going to be destroyed. It's all going to be destroyed. The temple complex was as lavishly beautiful as it was massive. And to the disciples, how would it be possible to destroy this massive complex as Jesus had predicted? Now we understand the importance of the scene set before us. Jesus had prophesied that the temple would be destroyed and not even His his disciples could believe it. Understand, this is a prediction. He's a prophet. He said, this temple will be destroyed. And if that hadn't come true, Jesus would have been a false prophet. And so we understand the importance, like I said, of this. This had to be fulfilled. This had to take place. And you want to know something? It did. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. Sadly, John, who was one of the four that was there, would be the only one of the four disciples who would have seen the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. He was the only one of the four still alive when a Roman army led by General Titus breached the Jerusalem's wall, breached the walls of the temple, and destroyed the temple as Jesus had predicted. He destroyed the temple. He burned it. They stacked up pyres of wood against the temple walls and they set them ablaze and the heat allowed them to roll the stones down into the valley below. They burned the temple which allowed them to destroy it. Why do we need to see the temple destroyed? Why is it so important for us to see that this happened in AD 70 as Jesus predicted? Because nothing better proves to us that the prophecies of Jesus Christ will come to pass exactly exactly as he states this is a foundational point of scripture for us because in AD 70 his prediction came true and this is a a confident place where we can be it gives us a confidence in that jesus when he speaks and when he gives prophetic announcements they come true because we see it happening when the temple of jerusalem destroyed if jesus makes a prophecy we can say this like the old saint. We can take it to the bank. If we see something in the Bible where Jesus says this is what's going to happen, can we count on it? We can take it to the bank, as the old saying goes. Because of this, we have confidence that we can trust the voice of Jesus over all the other voices that we see in the world and hear in the world. They all clamor for our attention. They all want to say that we have the prediction. We know what's going to happen in your life and in your family if you do this or if you do this. We understand what the weather's going to be. We understand that this is what the country is going to be like if this person gets an office. We understand what technologies are going to take off uh, and which ones aren't, so you need to invest in these, and we often find that, as we saw in the examples earlier today, that they are blatantly false. This truth that we can absolutely trust in the prophecies of Jesus Christ bring us great times and times of uncertainty because Jesus has proven he knows what the future holds and that truth gives us a strong foundation upon which our hope for the future is built. When we look at this passage, we have hope because we understand Jesus Christ when he speaks what? It's going to happen. What are some of the other future prophecies made by Jesus that we can take to the bank because of the fulfillment of the temple destruction prophecy. Well, we see a few of them in Matthew 24. We understand that there will be signs that point to the end of the age. We've already looked at that. The Jewish temple will be desecrated by the Antichrist. That has not happened, but what do we know absolutely that it's going to happen? The Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ, will return to destroy the evil one and establish his kingdom. What do we know for absolute fact that that's going to happen? We don't know when it will happen. Did the four uh, disciples sitting with him know exactly when the temple will be destroyed? No, they didn't. But did it come to pass? Yes. Three of them never saw it, at least on this earth. And then look at verse 34, Matthew chapter 24, verse 34. "Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Look at 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, what? Will not pass away. My words will never pass away. What do we know about the words that are in this book? What has Jesus predicted? They will be here for eternity. These words, the scriptures... What Jesus has said in the scriptures about salvation, what Jesus has said about who he is and and what he has done, they will never pass away. How much can we bank on the words that are in this book now? We we know absolutely they're not going to change. They're not going to change with culture. They're not going to change because we, we learn more scientifically or because we think we have more insight into human nature. It's not going to change. What God says, this here will not pass away. It will never change. It is something that we can bank on for the rest of our lives that the truth is here in this Bible. And it doesn't make any difference what culture says about this book or what is contained in the book. We know it is true. It will always be true. And we can walk that way for all of eternity. How many of us live as if this is absolutely true in every instance? How many of us bank our daily lives on what's contained in the Word of God. How many of us drift sometimes into believing what the world says more than what we believe the Bible says? Because it's not relevant, or it was written so long ago, it has to have changed, culture changed, the Bible changes. No. He says, my words will never pass away. We also have another prophecy, John 14, 1 through 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Look at what's predicted there. He has gone to what? Prepare a place for us is there any place on this entire planet that is going to be, that will match the place that he is going to prepare for us? Not, it's not even on the same planet, the same universe. It, we can't even comprehend the place that he is preparing for us. And so often we've invest so much into what we build on this planet that we act like and we think like that what we have here is more important than what we have there. He also says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? Come again. Jesus Christ is coming again. We will see our Savior in bodily form. He's not dead. He has not forgotten about us. He says, I will come back. And how many of us live each and every day as if Jesus Christ will come back? He could come back at any time. What will he find you doing? What will he find me doing when he comes back? There is no greater privilege that we have as Christ followers than to live our lives for him, waiting for him to come back, being ready for him to come back. And when he comes back, he can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. What a privilege we have for that. And we know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, he is coming back. And not only that, I will take you to myself, and where I will am, you will be also. He's not just coming back and then going to leave again. He's going to come back and take us with him. We're going to see things and experience things that make this earth look like nothing. All the effort and all the money and everything we've worked for on this planet will immediately disappear from our minds because what are we going to be so enthralled with? where he takes us there is nothing on this earth that we will even think about again reminds me of times kathy and i were military folks which you guys all know one of the greatest things that god has ever blessed us with is me being in the military because we had to move ever so often and every time we moved okay we started having to open up boxes that we hadn't opened up in years and here's a favorite saying of my wife why did we keep this And I'd say, where's it going to go? In the trash. She just said it. And we had to keep purging because we would keep collecting while we were there. And then every time we would move, we would have to purge again. We get so focused on the things of this world and so many things we have in boxes, we have in uh, in closets, all these things that mean so much to us and we never look at them for years and years and years and years and we hold on to them. And the thing we have to understand is none of it is going to be worth anything when christ comes back it's worthless And as we looked at in sunday school a little bit it's all going to be burned up and dissolved and we put so much of our heart and soul in this stuff instead of putting our heart and our soul into things that are going to last for eternity because jesus says i am coming back i am taking you with me it's okay for us to have nice things But when those things become what we live for and what we work hard for, when we let work harder at those things than we do in working on the mission that Christ has given us, when we invest more time in those things, then we need to step back and consider why. When those things become so important to us that we abandon what God's Word says, a Word that will never leave and never go away, then we need to say, Lord God, how can I change my life? What comfort we have in the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I go to prepare a place for you. I will return and I will take you with me. And as we go back into the beginning of chapter 20 or throughout chapter 24, and he talks about the tribulation, he talks about what's going to happen when the wrath of God comes upon the people of the earth and when justice is fulfilled. Those things are all exciting to us and they all are going to happen because Jesus Christ said they would. And they will come to pass just like the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 when not even his disciples thought that anything could destroy that temple. We can walk in confidence. We can walk following his voice. It is his voice that brings strength and confidence and hope when all the other voices are clamoring for us. And so many of them are going to be wrong. And so many of them are going to be short-sighted and misled. And we put so much stock in them when the only one that we should really be putting stock in is our Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope that you walk out of here with this morning. More than anything else, what our Savior has said will come true, no matter what it doesn't make any difference if we understand it. It doesn't make any difference if we can think it can happen. What Jesus Christ has said, what He has promised to us will come true. And we can bank on it. And anything else, any other voice, is just an opinion. And it could be wrong. So don't get lost in all the voices of this world that clamor for your attention. Don't get lost in all the myriads and myriads of news resources and information that we have and wondering what is true and what is not true and who is putting what spin on what thing. And I don't know who to vote for because there's so much spin out there. It doesn't really make any difference. We need to vote. We need to be good citizens. We need to live in the way that God wants us to live. But we need to look at everything through the scope of what? God's word, which never changes. And I hope and pray that you can walk out of here today with more confidence in your future more hope in your future because jesus christ has told you what each of your futures are going to be like and his word will come true and we can bank on that and we can invest in that and we know the return is more than what we could ever 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 imagine one of the things my dad often says he goes i was taught when i was in business that you always keep your eye on the ROI, the return on investment. Always. Well, what are you investing in now? What takes up the majority of your life now? Are you investing in the things that will have the eternal returns? The returns, the the ROI, based on the words of Christ in heaven? Or are you investing in the things that are going to dissolve and be gone? What is going to be the return on your investment on this earth? Let's pray. Father God, as we come to you right now, as we think about your word, as we think about the confidence and the hope that we can have in our future because of the things that Jesus Christ has predicted and prophesied and has promised, Lord God, I pray that we would take that at face value and that we would let those promises and those prophecies direct the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we invest in the things in this life, Ah Lord God, open our eyes, we ask and pray, to what we are really, truly investing in while we're here. I pray, Father, that we would, all of us, would invest the things that absolutely have the greatest returns because they are attached to the words of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the confidence we can have in our Savior's words. Thank you for the confidence that we have in knowing that he's going to return and come and take us with him because of the truth of the temple destruction that he predicted years and years before. Thank you for that example. Thank you for that illustration in your word that helps us to just place our entire lives, our entire hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for these things in Christ's name. Amen.